As a believer in Christ, what role does government play in your life? And what role does Christianity play in your life as you respond to the government? These are questions we're asking next on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. We welcome you to the program and would invite you to bring along your thinking cap along with your theology cap. We're going to take a look at a couple of, well, a couple of issues that many would say are dichotomous. They don't belong together. In fact, we've even tried to separate them here in the United States. Government, politics, and God and His Word. In our lives as Christians. How do the two fit together? Paul has a lot to say about it here in Titus chapter 3. That's what we catch up with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, for today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Christians must show every consideration for all men. It says there, be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Consideration is the word. A lot of times it's even translated gentleness or meekness. Uh, if, uh, Galatians 5 talks about it as a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't mean weakness. It rather means strength under control. It was used of a horse that is broken so that it is completely submissive to the master. You have this horse that could pretty much do whatever it wants to do. If you've ever been around a horse, they're very strong animals. And yet, when a horse is trained properly, you can get on that horse and you can just tug on the right rein just just ever so slightly. And that horse just does exactly what you want it to do. Now, that horse could say, you know what? I'm not going to go to the right. I'm going to go to the left. I'm not going to slow down. I'm going to go faster. And sometimes, I've been on a horse where you can pull on those reins all you want and that horse has a mind of its own and it's just going. And you're physically hurting the horse as you're pulling back as the, the, the bit bites into its mouth. And they don't care. They're stronger than us. That's the idea here. It's strength under control. We should be, have a consideration for all people. In our dealings with outsiders, we should be under the control of the Holy Spirit, responding graciously and kindly, even when we're wronged. Now, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes, you know, people push our buttons and, man, we react in a way that's just, where did that come from? You know, and that, once again, drives us back to God's grace, doesn't it? See, Paul's not calling us here to be perfect, perfect, perfect. He's calling us to live in a reasonable way. And these seven basic characteristics here, godly characteristics, kind of point us in the right direction. He's not demanding perfection. None of us are perfect in any way. And so the first thing there is the grace of God wants us to know how to act toward this ungodly world we live in. Secondly, he says not only does the grace of God cause us to teach us how to act toward the ungodly, but it also reminds us, you ready for this, that we were once just like them. (laughs) This is something we forget real quick when we become a Christian. Look at what it says here in, in Titus. It says in verse 3, Titus 3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish. That that word for shows the logical connection between verses 2 and 3. 
You know, I don't know about you, but I get sometimes impatient <laughs> with uh, unbelievers. I, I just get impatient with them. And, and sometimes, you know, I get impatient because um, sometimes they just act like selfish jerks. And, and they're just, you know, they're, they're abusing you in some way, whatever it might be. And they're taking advantage of you. And you, you just get impatient with that whole process. But see, if, if we want to behave as godly people towards them, and that's what it calls us to do in verses 1 and 2, then we need to remember that before we met Christ, guess what? We were one of them. <laughs> we don't like to remember that, do you? We were just like them. Unbelievers are, are living for themselves. They're not living for Christ. They're living for themselves. Sometimes... On the other hand, I get frustrated with Christians that talk to unbelievers in such a way and they hold them to a Christian standard. And I'm thinking, why would you think this unbeliever who doesn't know Christ, doesn't go to church or whatever, would want to live the way that your family does? They want to have the same standards that you do. They don't know any better. And note that Paul includes himself in this description. The Apostle Paul does. He says, for we ourselves... He doesn't say you, yourselves. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you know what? We're all in this together. And then he begins to list seven characteristics of unbelievers. So he tells us seven ways how we can react in a positive way to a pagan culture. But then he says, you know what? These are basic characteristics of someone who doesn't know Christ. And we were all there at one point. The first one is we were foolish. For we ourselves were once foolish. What's that mean? That, that, that word means that we were without any spiritual wisdom. We had no spiritual understanding. We did not know God. We were far from God. We weren't concerned with what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 1 verse 21, it says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal, of the, an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. When you, if you get a chance to watch this, this DVD of Evolution versus God, you're going to see some very, very intelligent people on here. I mean, people that are college professors with PhD after PhD in their name, and they head up whole departments. And when confronted with some basic reasoning and truth, they look very foolish. I mean, I'm surprised that when Ray Comfort goes to interview people, they just don't, I'm not, I'm not giving you any, any information because you're going to use it against me somehow. And, and that's what he does in a way. It, when you get done with this video, you're thinking, how can these people be so foolish? They don't know God. That's why. They, they think they're wise, but you know what? They're fools. And we were part of that group of people. They think they're doing the right thing. I mean, when you stop and you listen to... The news people talk about this whole health care 
situation. And you have people on one side, and you have people on the other side, and you're thinking, man, how could it be so far different? How could you be a human being and think this way? And yet, when you sit back and you think about it, hey, on one side, they're concerned that everybody has health care. That's a good thing. I mean, you know, I'm sure, you know, people... People need to have their health care taken care of. And I'm sure that there's a cost when people don't have insurance, and you can kind of reason that around. And then on the other hand, you know, they take it to the extent of, well, we're going to tell you everything that you're going to do, what insurance you're going to have, what doctor you're going to go to, what diseases are going to be covered, all this stuff. And so you can see both sides of it. I don't think that there's really maliciousness on either side. I think they really believe this stuff. They really think that they're doing the right thing. They're foolish. Secondly, it says there that they're disobedient. Not only were we foolish, but we were disobedient. In other words, we didn't obey God. Well, we didn't obey God because we didn't know God. We only obeyed the laws of the government when it was convenient for us to do so. And the only reason we did it then was because we feared the consequences of being caught might be uh, at greater risk than doing the right thing. And so we were living for ourselves and whatever furthered our own interests. That's just the way it is. We hate the thought of, of being submissive or obedient to any authority, including God. That's why we live in a kind of a godless society almost. People don't want to deal with God because they can do whatever they want. I mean, it's all around us. Fallenness is all around us. I mean, just this last week, we had a cement pad poured over on the other side of the building on the right hand side. Just a small pad, two by seven feet. Guy came out, finished it all up, looked good. You know, I came in the next morning. Some teenagers were over there, drew all this cuss words on it, and right in the cement. And I'm thinking, why would you do this? You know. Luckily, the cement wasn't totally dry, so I kind of used my sneakers and was able to, you know, smooth it out to the point where you couldn't really say, see what was being written. But it's just disgusting stuff. And I thought, you know, they're disobedient. You know, they're, they don't have a grudge against our church. They're just out there doing what comes natural. <laughs> also, thirdly, we're deceived. It says we're deceived. In other words, we didn't understand the, the, the spiritual truth. We were disobedient and we're being led astray. We didn't understand spiritual truth. And so we're being led astray by Satan. There's only two roads. You're either on the road of the Lord or the road of Satan. I mean, when people think they're sophisticated enough to throw off God's standard of moral purity and, and kind of you, you see some of these entertainers today, they're doing all sorts of just horrendous things. And they're not just doing it in the privacy of their own thing. No, they're, they're putting them on, they put them on video and so the whole world can see. Or they'll perform in a way that's just, in a way, disgusting. And yet you think, why would you do this? They're deceived. They think they can find happiness and fulfillment through the lusts of the flesh and by accumulating material things. We thought, when we were there, we thought that we could violate God's law. And you know what? There's not going to be any consequences. Get away with it. They're deceived. Fourthly, it says that we were once enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. 
says, slaves to various passions and pleasures. I mean, sin is kind of like an addictive drug. It always enslaves the one who dabbles with it every time. At first, it kind of gives you the message, oh, it's going to meet all your needs. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It even seems pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. When you violate God's laws of purity, you violate the principle of putting foreign things into your body, drugs, whatever it might be. Well, initially, those things are satisfying. People drink to dull the pain, the problem, the pressures, whatever it might be. There's people who practice dishonest businesses. And you know what? I mean, they're, they're making some money by doing that. And all that is sin and it enslaves us and it ultimately destroys us. And fifthly, it says we once spent our lives in malice. Passing our days in malice. Malice means that you have ill will toward others. That you just, you, you just don't like somebody so much that you're actually wishing ill on them. It stems from selfishness, wanting our own way. Even if it means harming somebody else to get it, it doesn't matter. If you have to lie about a rival to get him fired, well then do it because that's your promotion. If you have to cheat somebody out of something to get what you want, well that's too bad. That's the way the business world works. If you, spread, if you have to spread nasty rumors about your enemy to make them look bad, well, you know what? It's a dog-eat-dog world. That's malice. That's what it's all about. And then it speaks about envy. Envy means wanting what someone else has and desiring it to be in the position that they are in. It kind of, you know, you're wanting something so much and you're wanting to be somebody that you're not. And it has really, it's closely connected with greed. Envy led Ahab and Jezebel to kill Naboth in order to take his vineyard. Even though they already had a bunch of vineyards, they had more than they needed. Envy led the Pharisees to kill Jesus because he was gaining more followers than them. It's a deed of the flesh. Galatians tells us that. Envy. And then it says we were once hateful. I mean, I think very few people would admit that they were hateful. I mean, we, we like to flatter ourselves as being lovable people. So we think, oh, well, I would never hate anybody. But hatred is, is basically this. It's essentially self-centeredness, and it's a disregard for others' feelings and, and, and needs. Uh, practically speaking, it, it kind of goes like this. If someone hurts me, and I respond by thinking or saying this, you know what, he can just drop dead. That's all I care, I don't care. That's hatred. If you say, I don't ever want to talk to that person again, that's hatred. So even if it doesn't take an outward form of trying to hurt someone or kill someone, it says that we're all marked by hatred before we came to Christ. Because we all live for ourselves. We were indifferent toward others unless we could get something from them. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, you know what? I was never like this. <laughs> I'm basically a pretty good person. I mean, even before I was a Christian, I was a pretty good person. And I'll just say this. It's true that not everybody displays these characteristics to the worst degree. That's true. Maybe you had an up 
good upbringing in a Christian family where your parents taught you to be considerate toward others and practice Christian morality. Perhaps your sin was restrained because of your circumstances. But if you know your own heart, and God knows it better than you do, every one of these sins is just lurking below the surface. The truth basically is this, beloved. On the heart level, we all have violated every one of the Ten Commandments to some degree. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 to 30, anger is murder in God's sight. Lust is adultery. All have stolen, all have lied, all have coveted. We've all practiced hypocrisy, trying to impress others that we're better than we know we are. I mean, stop and think, why is verse 3 in this text? It's there because I think Paul wants, and he knows that in order for us to act with love and to act with good deeds toward unbelievers who mistreat us continuously, who malign us continuously, who falsely accuse us continuously, we need to remember what we used to be like. We're made of the same stuff. And you know what? We would still be acting just like this if it wasn't for God's grace and this glorious truth that he points out in verse 4. God's grace helps us to remember that it was God's undeserved kindness and mercy that changed you. But when the goodness and loving kindness, look at what it says, of God our Savior appeared. I love that word, but. It's one of the most glorious phrases in all of Scripture. God's kindness, God's love, God's mercy. They, they give us the effects of our, our salvation, regeneration, renewal, justification. They give us the means of our salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. They give us the goal of our salvation, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this wonderful gift of God. In verses 4 through 7, it's very clear that the thrust of this text is dealing with salvation. And it says that, you know what, it's not because of who you were. It's not because of your own goodness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, what's it say? He saved us. Why? Because we needed saving. We couldn't save ourselves, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's why it's so key to understand that we don't have a man-centered salvation. It's not up to us to save ourselves. It's up to God to save us. We can't save ourselves. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He created us, transformed us, made us a brand new person in Christ. I mean, Paul's point here is very clear. If you received mercy when you deserved judgment, then you should be able to show God's kindness, love, and mercy to unbelievers when they don't show you the same. Because then they will look at you in a different way. They will say, why are you treating me this way? I am treating you in a nasty fashion. I'm not being polite to you. I'm I'm being downright nasty to you. And you're not responding in the normal fashion. Why? 
and you can point them to Christ. It's God's undeserved kindness and mercy that changed us through his grace. And they're done through the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see God, you see the Son, you see the Holy Spirit all involved in this process. I love verse 6. It says, whom he poured out on us sparingly, (laughs) no, richly, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior. He didn't withhold anything. He just poured it out. Remember when Jesus was anointed with that flask of perfume. And Judas' response was, what are you thinking? We could have sold this stuff. This is, you know, why would you just, you know, waste the whole thing? See, when God reaches us and he saves us, he always does so in a lavish fashion. He, he does so in an abundant fashion. He does so in a way that is, is just so rich. So much more than what we need. God just piles it on through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, justified basically means that we have a different standing before God than we did before. When you come to Christ, you're standing before God. The Father changes. Before you were condemned, you were one who was sinful. You had works of the flesh. You didn't have your own righteousness. There was nothing that could be done for you. But when God saved you, he took the righteousness of Christ and he put it on you. He put it in your account. He gave you his righteousness because you had none of your own. And because of that, it changed your standing with God. No longer does God look at us in Christ as those condemned to hell. No longer does God look at us as these horrible, sinful people. No, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're placed into his body. We are in Christ So we are justified by his grace, something we don't deserve. And the reason is is that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, if you're looking for hope in this life, you're going to be looking a long time if you don't look to the cross. That's the only place we can find any hope. The idea that we can be resurrected from our sinful dead state... And be a living living being who once again has a reconciled relationship with God the Father. God desires that from every one of us. And in verse 8 there when he says, And this saying is trustworthy. This is kind of a way that, that, that scripture says, You know what, this is, this is true beyond, it's been tested and, and, and tried. I'm not just making this up. Paul's saying, I'm not just pulling this out of the the air here. This is a trustworthy saying. It's based upon the word of God. And he tells Titus, I want you to insist on these things. And here's the whole reason. Here's why we do it. Here's why we let people treat us this way. Here's why we respond the way that we talked about. It's all summed up right here in verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful. Look at, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. I pray that this morning 
that you understand what Christ has done for you. That even somebody like John Newton, who was basically a a drunken sailor, an evil slave trader, but by God's grace he became a, a great preacher, hymn writer. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. God wants us to be reminded that you know what, it's only because of the grace of God that that we're saved at all. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.